Good morning, Highland. We are in a series titled Man of Action. Uh, I feel like that's what I'm going to have to be this morning to get through the entire text. Um, if you're a visitor this morning, I just want to welcome you. Um, we're glad you're here. And uh, we are in Mark 7 together. We've been walking through this. Um, this passage is sectioned uh, between a couple uh, groups of Jesus doing miracles. Um, before the section we're going to read today, we see that Jesus had fed uh, thousands on five loaves and two fish. Uh, he walked on water. And then we'll, we'll go where we're going to go today. And after this, uh, let the cat out of the bag. He goes on to heal a deaf man. He casts out a demon. He feeds thousands on seven loaves and a few fish. And then he'll heal a blind man, among other things. So he's been a little busy, we can see. Um, and this first passage that we're going to read, it deals with tradition. We've kind of said that already. And when it comes to tradition, so many things come to mind for me. And if I'm honest, tradition is a little awkward, especially when it comes to things that we do for no good reason. And I know, though, that this is not always the case. I know there are some traditions that we do that are okay. I'm not saying that we can't have turkey at Thanksgiving or anything like that. Um, But there are some traditions we do, I know I do, and I don't even know why I do them. It's just what we do. And um, there was one time I was in an auto race, um, and uh, I'll never forget this. And it was the beginning of the race, and everybody stood up, and there was the national anthem. And I was the one guy who forgot, I genuinely, I confess, I forgot to take off my hat. And so some guy from 20 rows back chucks a piece of ice at me. And I'm like, seriously? I just forgot. So I took my hat off because I wanted to honor his tradition. Um, Tradition shows up in marriage. Uh, When we get married, sometimes we take on traditions that we really don't even know we're taking on. We didn't even know. And and I think I'm really lucky that... Uh, and Shay's really lucky too, by the way. Um, but I'm just kidding. Um, neither one of us really brought to uh, our marriage a host or, or a lot of baggage of tradition. Okay, it was really kind of easy to go. Okay, you want to do it this way? You want to do it this way? That's fine. Whatever. Um, except for one thing. Um, and I came to learn this rather early. And I learned that at Christmas dinner, that um, if we didn't have crab legs a hole would open up in the time-space continuum, and we would get sucked into that hole, and we would not return until next Christmas. And so um, Shay's parents, uh, I love them dearly, they're, they're my in-laws, um, and they're likely watching from Atlanta right now, and I just want to say to you guys, would it hurt to have a ham once every 13 years? Amen. Right? I heard an amen to that. It's good. Um, but really, I am fine with the crab legs. Um, they've actually become a nice tradition for our family. Uh, And it's one that I actually genuinely do look forward to, so we don't have to stop that. Um, I say these things because I do want to establish that there is a difference between man-made cultural tradition and man-made religious tradition. They are different, okay? And there are times, however, when man-made tradition can become religious tradition, particularly if they become an idol, or if they become a non-negotiable, or if that tradition becomes something we just can't live without, or if it's something that we judge others by. And, And it really gets dicey when this tradition that we create actually starts to violate the commandment of God. Or when a particular particular tradition is elevated at or above God's word. And when this happens, we'll see that a collision of biblical magnitude takes place. 
I preface this way for a few reasons. First, so that my in-laws know that this sermon is not about their strict adherence to crab legs at Christmas dinner, all right? Secondly, so when you hear me talk about tradition, that you understand that we are speaking in context of the Pharisees and their ridiculous behavior. And I will be speaking to get today in, in context of all of the things that they have created against God's law. And thirdly, so that we can begin to analyze honestly our own faith and our own practice and our own tradition against the commandment and word of God, just to see how much Pharisee we may have in us. And I also want to preface and deal with the potential confusion that can happen when we contrast spiritual disciplines like Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, fasting, or as we follow Christ in obedience in baptism, which we'll do later, and also sitting at the Lord's table and together taking communion. None of these areas are traditions. These are not places where man has added towards God, unless, of course, tradition is the only reason why you do them. For example, if you find yourself here this morning, because Sunday morning is just, this is where you come on Sunday morning, and you have no good reason, Sunday morning is just, you just go to church, then it's possible that tradition has preyed on a very good practice, and that practice is the gathering of believers. And we see if we do that over and over and over, and it just becomes rote and tradition in our life, then we'll see that tradition takes over a good practice. And before we read, read God's word this morning, I, I do want to remind you, just as Shay did, that um, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And that this passage contains the, where, the very word of God in the voice of Jesus. So we read verses 1 through 5 in Mark chapter 7. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed, his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they've poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. But this is one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of a religious law asked him, they're talking to Jesus now, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat first without performing the hand-washing ceremony. Would you pray with me? Lord, may your word bring change. Would you transform, it? transform us, Lord? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. God, would you break us of all of the things that do not bring you joy, all of the things that do not bring you alone pleasure. And God, I, most importantly, I just ask, would you break us of the love affair that we have for ourselves. Have you ever shaken hands with somebody after they've coughed or sneezed? It's like, oh, thanks, I really don't want to do that, but, but you do it. This is not the hand washing 
that was going on here. There was so much more significance to why the Pharisees adhered to these traditions that are being spoken of here. We simply, we don't have time to go into the massive depth of these traditions, but at a 40,000 foot view, we see that the Pharisees thought that if they ever came in contact with a sinner or a Gentile, specifically here at the market they're talking about, they would be unclean. They would be contaminated. This wasn't the hand washing that I do after I shake hands with Greg or Tim or anybody else here. Okay? It's not these hand sanitizers that we have in the back. It's important that we get this. It's not just they weren't washing their hands before a meal. There was a ceremony. It was man-made religion forcing people to jump through man-made hoops after rubbing shoulders with ordinary people. And so we start with a simple stage that would be set that would become a very great clash. In fact, it's a clash that would ultimately lead to Christ's crucifixion. And it's a violent clash of man-made religious tradition versus obediently practicing and following the commandment of God. It's the divine versus humanity. It's God's authority versus man's authority. It's true spirituality versus mere superficiality. It's an internal reality of our heart versus an external religion. And, and we see that the Pharisees arrived to see Jesus. And you'd think, well, that would be innocent. But it's not the truth. They, arose, they arrived there to see Jesus, to trap him. They were like theological hitmen sent to tear the Lord Jesus Christ down. They were there to dig up dirt. They were there to discredit him publicly. And they were actually given to keeping very minute levels. At the very small levels, they were obeying God's law. They actually believed everything in the Bible. Really? They did? They did. But then they added to it multitudes of their own traditions, the frailty of human behavior. The implication of these verses isn't just that they showed observance to laws, but when they did, they were absurd in how they did so. Their traditions were elevated to a level of Scripture and even above Scripture. They were not slight, unintentional mishaps or misunderstandings of God's law. They were evil additions to the Word of God. And so we see that when tradition meets God's word, there's a clash. It's not just impolite. It not, it's not just oops. When human preference and identity and practice trumps God's commandment, it's not a minor event. It's actually like two plates of the earth grinding violently against each other. And we'll see that this, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest confrontations that we'll read about in all of the Bible. See, the Protestant Reformation was about 500 years ago, and it could also be summed up in this very clash. It was truth versus years and years of empty religious tradition. We know that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and the Bible is never subordinate to tradition. So what was Jesus' response to these guys and their traditions? And we're going to see in verses 6 through 9 that he rips them a new tradition. 
He replied, and he did not quote in his reply, Isaiah. I mean, sorry, he did not quote the elders. He did not quote the Pharisees. He quoted Isaiah. You hypocrites, exclamation point. So as to say, you phonies, you actors, you pretenders, you hide behind masks. In Matthew 29, Jesus called them hypocrites seven times in rapid secession. He didn't blink. He did not honor their traditions. He challenged them publicly, and he didn't pull them aside behind closed doors and politely correct them. He called them out, and he called them out in front of crowds. He was not politically politically correct, and there were no safe spaces for the Pharisees. When he said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote... These people honor me with their lips. We could learn something from that. They sing well. They speak well. They even know the scripture. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. Meaning they are actors, performers. They're rehearsing lines. Today, sadly... You may have everyone fooled. It's possible. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God, for you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully, skillfully, as if you are good at it, you are experts at sidestepping God's law in order to hold to your own tradition. And then he illustrates in verses 10 through 12, And in 13, he says, And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example of many others. And to those who were wrapped up and entrapped in the law of the Pharisees, he was kind. He would say, Go and sin no more. He had patience. He had kindness. He had gentleness. But to those that were defenders of man-made religion, he operated with zero tolerance. He paid no respect to their customs and their preferences or feelings. There's a simple principle that I think we can learn here this morning from this, of many. Those that fight for and hold to traditions will cling to them at all cost. And I've seen it flare up in many areas. I think the same does exist today as in the days of Jesus because the condition of the human heart, it really hasn't improved Pharisees are still alive, and I've seen the ultra-religious cling to their traditions so much that young people, students, they can't hear a word they say because their tradition is so loud. So they scream louder. The ears of the listeners become numb because they know. They know what's going on. This occurrence doesn't exist so that we can simply throw stones at the Pharisees, okay? It's easy for us to be the dude that chucked the piece of ice at me for not wearing or for not taking my hat off. That's not the purpose of this. If all we see is stodgy old traditionalists, then really we're missing the point. It's easy to be Pharisees towards the Pharisees. I mean, can you imagine their, uh, their audacity? They were charging his followers with breaking their tradition. They were putting his perfection on trial against their tradition. They were subjecting his goodness to his creative order. 
to their identity. And they were accusing His holiness of their hollow. But if all we get is those mean old Pharisees, we'll miss it. A visitor asked me just last week, who's considering Highland for their family, he was commenting on how he liked the children in the worship service. There were a lot of them this morning. He said, do you think that you'll ever not have children in the worship service? Tradition would say they don't belong here. Tradition would say children should be seen and not heard. Tradition would say that they're a noisy, clanging nuisance. But if I'm honest, some of the deepest spiritual questions that I've ever been dealt come from children. Just this week, I asked her if I could share this. She said yes. My nine-year-old, as we prayed, said, Daddy, and she always gets me when she says, Daddy, I mean, you, you have to pay attention. Daddy, would you pray, and would you ask Jesus if he'd say hi to Brittany for me? I said, in a split moment, in a, in a half second or a tenth of a second, a Pharisee began to rise up inside. Is that a reasonable prayer request? Can I ask that? What does she even mean? Does she even know what she's asking for? What is that all about? For a split second, a Pharisee, it rose up. And I squashed it quick. But this is an example of how we can be that way. And I said, I'll pray that prayer. And as I began to think about this prayer over the next day, honestly, several days, I began to see that that simple prayer request from a nine-year-old child was rich in theology. She believes that Jesus hears her and that she's not alone. She believes that he saves sinners because Brittany is in a better place. She believes that he is spirit and that he's reachable. She believes that he is capable, that he is capable to do that which she asks. And there's so much more. I, we could probably go on and on about the richness of a simple childlike request. It's good for us to consider them. It's good for us to consider the faith of a child in simple obedience to the Word of God. It would be good for us to consider what it means to pass the baton of faith and leadership to the next generation. These rows of seats are filled with young children that are gardens, that are waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to begin the work of regeneration and rebirth over their souls. And frankly, the more steeped we become in aimless tradition, the more stubborn and obtuse that we appear to them. See, we learn by Pharisees that traditions die hard if they ever die at all. But we need to hear more. Okay, And it's good that the story doesn't stop with the Pharisees. His blasting of the Pharisees, frankly, it's good to hear. It does me good to hear him sit them down. But we as the crowd, we as the followers, we need to hear more. So Jesus addresses the crowd and he says, he, Jesus called the crowd 
to come and hear. All of you listen. So as to say, this is important. Listen up. He said, and try and understand. So as to say, I know this is going to be tough. This is going to be against the grain. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from or out of your heart. And he is completely flipping the Pharisees right now upside down with this provocative statement. He's saying that what defiles us, it's already there. We're born with it. It's built in. And I know that with my prefacing earlier, I I, want to try to do a, a good job to set aside all the other arguments, okay? And I know that there's some that might be saying, well, what about the Levitical dietary laws? You know, this is talking about food. It's talking about diet, right? Isn't there a a distinction between the clean and the unclean? And overwhelmingly, yes, there is a distinction between the clean and the unclean. The laws were vivid object lessons. They were pictures. They were portrayals that God has the right to determine what is clean and unclean. The clean food was food. And the unclean food was food. But it was the disobedience out of the person that ate the unclean food that defiled them, not the food itself. Man was already unclean. Adam took care of this for us. Man has never had to eat food. This is what Jesus is saying. Man has never had to eat food to become unclean. This is why he said, try and understand. Then he moves into a private clarification with the followers. He went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable that he just used. And he says, don't you understand either? I could almost sense the tension, the frustration in his voice. And I think it would do us good to read this question to ourselves. Don't you understand either? He asked, can't you see that the food you put in your body cannot defile you? Food cannot affect the spirit. Food is the physical, and it does not possess the power to defile you. Food, he says, doesn't go into the heart. And he's not talking about 70 beats a minute heart. He's talking about your heart, heart. He says that food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. This this passage doesn't exist so that we can be justified in eating bacon-wrapped Swiss cake rolls. I would, I want one. I'm just going to say it. But it doesn't, this passage is not what justifies me being able to eat that, okay? Um, Because probably I shouldn't eat that, so that probably would be a sin. Even though it's acceptable, I should not eat bacon-wrapped Swiss cake rolls. I'm just saying. Um... But if this is where we end up, again, we're missing the point. He's talking about matters of the heart, our heart. What is our heart? It's the center of your personality. It's the seat of your motives, the base of your emotions, your attitudes, your desires, your loyalties. They are all rooted in your heart. It's who you really are. We're going through some premarital counseling with a couple who will be getting married soon. And 
I wanted to start the first session off right, so I said to him, and we're sitting at our, our kitchen table, which we love, and, and it's, it's me sitting across from him and Shay sitting across from her, and the kids are out running around or doing something, probably being loud, and, and I asked him, why do you like her? And he proceeded to tell me, you know, it's because she like floats off of the air a couple inches. She just kind of glides around. I thought that was awesome and cute. And there was light that just kind of emits from her. He's just in love. Um, He talked about how beautiful she was. He talked about how kind she was many times. And I thought that was cute. Um, And at one point, he paused, kind of giving me a shot to say something. And I kind of looked at Shay, and I, I, I don't know if she knew what I was going to say or not, but I know that I can make her awkward with, by my questions. And so I was like, hey, here's a good time. I'm just going to really hit him right in between the eyes. And I said, what if I told you she was morally evil? <laughs> Hannah laughs. <laughs> you know, so as to bring down all these things. And he looked at her, and he said... He stood right up and he said, we are out of here. We're not going to take this torment. That's harassment. We're gone. Uh, Just kidding. He did not. I was actually very impressed. I was very impressed by his answer. It was quick. And I could tell that he'd thought about it before. And you know what he said? I believe you. And it's then I knew that I'll bet you he knows Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9 says the... um, Wives are not kind. They're not floating above. I'm just kidding. It does not say that. (laughs) Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. I want you to stop and think about that simple phrase. There's a comma there, so there's like more coming. But that's huge right there. Think about the most deceitful thing you can ever think of. If you're not thinking about your heart, then it's not deceitful enough. And it's crazy to me. And then it goes on, he goes on, he says, and it's desperately wicked. Wow, so my heart is desperate for wickedness. And then, who really knows how bad it is? Who really knows how big the universe is? Who really knows how bad the human heart is. And in this proclamation, we learn a lot. We learn a lot about our need. Jesus continues in verse 20, and then he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. So as to say, this is the problem. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is quite a description. He leaves nothing out and he holds nothing back. All these vile things come from within. It's already in you, he's saying. We've inherited the image of Adam. We've been made in the image of God, but we have inherited the image of Adam. Jesus addresses the true state of the human heart, and it does not get a good report. And sadly, we do not get a clean bill of health. He teaches that man's greatest problem, it's not around him. It's not a function of his or her environment. 
And he's also calling into question the very notion that man is good apart from him. And it's good, it is so good that he does this. It's so helpful that he does this. He's teaching that the mind and the emotions and the will, they are all plagued with a disease called sin. And that we are not capable of treating it. It's so good that he points this out. It's actually, it's actually out of his kindness and his mercy that he reveals this to us. One of my favorite speakers and writers right now, Stephen Lawson, he says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. He's speaking to who you really are. He's teaching here that the totality of man's inner self, it's permeated by sin. It is radically corrupt. And we see that unwashed hands, it's not the problem. Kosher meals, not an issue. Coming to church every Sunday morning, that's not what it's about. It's not the matter. Making sure that my good outweighs my bad, it's of little consequence. The list goes on and on. Recently, Shay went to the store and she posted this about her findings. June 26th at 7.28 p.m. at Fletcher Ingalls. You should have checked in. You should have checked in. Uh, that time I wanted to punch an avocado for lying to me. Hashtag most deceptive food on the planet. I'm convinced if our heart were a food, it would be an avocado because there's not a single person in this room that's never picked a bad avocado. And if you haven't ever picked one, I'm just going to say you will. That's just the way it goes. You know exactly what I mean. I know some of you will claim that you've got the perfect method. It's all about the firmness and the color. And if you pop the stem open, you can see really what's going on in there. Lie, lie, lie. It is a deceptive food. From avocados comes no good. They are deceitful. They look good on the outside, but they are rotten, and they are stringy, and they are black on the inside. What determines the condition of this cowardly representation of health food is not what's on the outside, the condition of its skin, its firmness, but the condition of the totality of the slimy mush that we call guacamole. And the, the only thing that you can do with a bad avocado is get a new one. And I will lose all of my pride to come up with silly illustrations that point to the cross. I'm just going to say that. This is what Christ offers on the cross. He offers us a new heart. Not a cleaned up version of the stringy black mess that we've become that we were born as. He offers us a new heart because that's what we need. That is desperately what we need. And I've said this before. He takes the worst in us, the very worst in us, and he exchanges it for the very best in him. That's a picture of the cross. So where do we go from here? How do we live in light of this passage? What does this mean? First, we hold to the, sufficient, to the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need outside opinion on spiritual matters. And let me just say, we are not 
at war against the culture. We have got to come to terms with this. We are not at war against the culture. But we do not need the culture's opinion on the perfect sufficiency of truth found in Scripture. There's no other infallible book but the Word of God. And we, not, we must not pattern our life against any other template but what we find in the Bible. Psalm 19, 7-8 says the instructions of the Lord are perfect. They're reviving of the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making simple the wise. The commandments of the Lord are right. They're sure, bringing joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord, they are clear, giving us insight for living. We have everything we know or everything we need to know how to live in the Bible. Secondly, we resist the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in our own lives and we get a new heart. We can fall prey. I have fallen prey to emphasizing outward appearances. And if I'm honest, it's the one thing that I struggle with in my life the most. We must resist attempts to cover our heart. I beg you this morning. I beg you. Quit living like everything is great. It's also what a Pharisee does. Everything's great. There's no problems. Quit pretending. It's likely that you aren't fooling anyone but yourself. And Ban, you can come forward. Um, We learn here that external religion and tradition, it cannot do heart surgery. Cleaning up the outside does not clean up the inside. We need a new heart. There's no mask that we can paint on, put on, or fit in that will change who we really are. You need a new heart. And it's a heart that only a supernatural God can give you. We don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to meet with a counselor. You don't need a magic prayer, or a catchphrase, or a catechism, or a confession. We aren't reborn by parroting prayers and phrases. We simply believe and we turn away from our sin. What Jesus is telling us is to stop hanging on to your own rules. Stop clinging to what you do. It's a call to hang on to what He's done to release us from the torment of hell and sin and religion. We're released not just to eat what we want to eat, but to believe and follow Him in simple obedience. So we respond. It's what we do. We hear these things, and so we respond. And there's a lot of response today. I love it. One thing we do is we respond by taking communion together. Remember, this is not a tradition. We sit together as the body of Christ, and we take this cracker, and we take juice, and it reminds us of what he's done. And by taking it, we are not saved. It's because we are rescued. It's because we are saved that we take it. We only take these elements if we believe in what they represent. This act this morning has no power to save you, but it does have the power to remind you that Christ died for you, that he was buried for you, that he was raised for you, that he would reappear for you, and that he is coming again 
for you. We respond by prayer. Over here in this area, you can put up prayer requests. If you don't want to talk to anybody, that's okay. You can go and someone will pray over your requests. We respond by simply getting up and talking to somebody. There will be elders and Joe leaders over here on the side. If you say, I, I, need, I, I need to get rid of the Pharisee in my life, there will be there, those there to receive you. You may say, I need a new heart. Wow, I, I've never heard this thing about the heart transplant. I need a new heart. I'd be happy to talk with you over here. Let's pray. Lord, um, I'm thankful for your word, and I am so thankful that by the Pharisees, you showed me that I need a new heart. Lord, it would do us good to consider these things. Help us to conform our life against what is sure, against what is true, against what is trustworthy in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.